welcome to CAD Speaker Series Podcast. This week, Ting McNaught, Research Fellow here at CAD, will be interviewing Land Pritchett, Professor of the Practice of International Development at the Harvard Kennedy School. Professor Pritchett just delivered a talk on the often overlooked gains of migration to both rich and middle-income countries. Professor Pritchett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, today's topic of discussion is on the potential and resistance of human mobility. Uh, you've been researching and writing on this subject for quite some time. Uh, you published a book called Let Their People Come in 2006. So I'd like to start by asking, over these years, what is one of the biggest myths or misconceptions about labor mobility that you continue to come across? I think the biggest myth is that economies can't accommodate more workers. People still tend to think of a job as being something like an apple, which if I eat it, you don't eat it, so it's this thing that there's only one of, and or you know there's one apple, I eat it, you eat it, it's excludable. Whereas the number of jobs in an economy depends on how pe many people there are there. Most modern economies can absorb enormously larger number of people, the, the flow of people than they actually have, because the availability of people will create jobs that will they'll be absorbed in the labor market with relatively impact, to be honest, on the native workers because mostly they don't compete one-to-one -one with jobs for native workers, uh, particularly for the low-skilled migration of the type I usually talk about. And I think the evidence is now just completely compelling and overwhelming on this, but because people have other political resistances and they don't want to say their true reasons for opposing migration, they always throw up, oh, it'll lower jobs for natives, and it's, it's just not true. All right, um, we're sitting at a policy school right now, so let's talk about numbers. Um, you've done a lot of empirical research on labor mobility. Uh, could you give us a sense of how much labor mobility can increase the wages of workers from lower-income countries? And maybe as a comparison, how does that magnitude compare with uh, the best foreign aid pro programs? Mostly, when low-skilled mo workers move to high-productivity places like the U.S. or Germany or France, their wages go to almost the same as similarly skilled natives almost instantaneously, which means um, their differences in wages aren't about the intrinsic productivity of the worker, they're about the productivity of the place. Um, kind of the gain per person per year of a low-skilled worker moving from a typical development country is between ten dollars and $20,000 per year off a base of an average wage in the developing country of something between two and $5,000 a year. So depending on the real how much gain there is depends on the wage where you come from because most people, no matter where they come from, make about the same once they're in the United States, no matter what the wage of the place you're from. But the gains are just massive. They're largely validated, meaning we have four different ways of estimating the gains to these of low-skill mo movement, and it's all between ten dollars and $20,000 a year per low-skill worker moved, um, versus, again, a wage in the home country of two to five. The thing about this is that when you talk about mobility, you talk about factors. They increase by a factor of four or five. They increase from $2,000 to $10,000 a year, or a, or a gain from $5,000 to $15,000 a year is an increase in wages by a factor of three all in situ interventions, all things that happen that we try and benefit people in place, we measure the gains in terms of fractions. If we 
you know, everybody is like very enthusiastic about doing more education because more educated workforces are, have higher productivity and higher wages. Okay, that's fine. And true, um, the typical wage gain per an additional year of schooling is 0.1. It's 10%, right? Your wage premium is 10% per year of schooling. So let's say we took a person, gave them five additional years of schooling, their wage would go up 50%. We're still not even to a factor of one. And that's just a consequence that markets actually work pretty well. Since markets work pretty well, most people are compensated something near to their productivity in the job they are, which means if we do some intervention to raise their productivity, we should expect modest effects, because if there were huge effects, the market might have identified those and they would have already been realized. So I think all of the evidence is in C2 interventions are going to produce tiny fractions of gains, like if we could reliably increase people's income by 10% per year through an intervention, we would be fantastically happy, whereas that's 0.1 on the scale that the gains from labor mobility are four. So again, it's orders of magnitude larger. It's not like, oh, one is 0.1 and one's 0.2. One is 0.1 and one is 4. I've heard you say that, um, like the example of maybe Haiti, that 80% of Haitians that have been able to get out of poverty are not living in Haiti. They, right. And so um, <laughs> if you really cared about getting Haitians out of poverty, then right. the most sensible policy solution is to just allow them to come to your country and work. Uh, exactly. I mean, the, the question is, <clears throat> how much more productive can we make Haitians in the place of Haiti? That's a question I'm hugely interested in. I work on, you know, development interventions that can improve productivity places and increase their economic growth all the time. But, you know, if we could turn Haiti into a place that was growing at 5% per capita, we'd be fantastically thrilled. If that lasted for 10 years, incomes in Haiti would be 50% higher. The gap in our data, which is a little dated, but in our data, data, Haitians in Haiti make about 80 cents an hour. Haitians in the U.S. make unskilled Haitians with low skill levels, make 80 cents an hour in Haiti. They make $8 an hour in the United States. It's a factor of 10. You just, again, the consequences of you know growth, even economic growth, which I'm a huge fan of, for the rate of progress of Haitians just can't match what's available just by letting them work in a more productive place. And, by the way, going back to the first point about the myth, at zero cost to the United States. People only pay the Haitians $8 an hour because they actually produce $8 an hour of product for the worker. Nobody's paying a Haitian $8 an hour out of charity when they're in the United States. They're paying them $8 an hour because that's at least their marginal product. Maybe they're being exploited a bit and it's even higher than that. So the point is the marginal product of the Haitian goes up when they come from Haiti to the United States. And again, just empirically, most Haitians who are above any threshold of poverty are because the Haitians are in the United States or in some other place, not because they've been lifted out of poverty in Haiti. So you've mentioned a lot of the benefits to the migrant workers, but you know, immigration policy is not always so popular in, these, in the host countries. And I'm going to go kind of into a lightning round here where there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> these are some concerns that people might bring up, and I just want your quick re response to how would you respond to this. Mm -hmm. so, so immigrants, they, they take away more in government benefits than they put into the system. So the fiscal cost of a migrant is whatever you want it to be, meaning that statement's probably false, but we're perfectly free as America to design whatever benefits we want migrants to be entitled to. So... The fiscal cost of a migrant isn't a fixed thing, it's a policy design thing. If you're worried about the fiscal cost, 
let's worry about the policy design that doesn't entitle them to the range of benefits we have to pay. Full stop. It's easy. Um, immigrants should just come here legally. They would come here legally if there were any legal channel. That's just silly. <laughs> uh, that's it's just silly. I mean, I, if you're in favor of more legal immigration, you're with us. If you're saying they should come here legally, but I don't want more of them here legally, then that's just facetious. Rich countries should only allow high-skilled immigrants. This is a very strange argument because we all know that the gains from trade come from differences, not similarities. If you have two oil-producing countries, they can't make they can't make themselves by better off by swapping oil. So what do they do? They swap oil with people that produce cars. Cars go one way, oil goes the other. So gains from trade arise from differences. So the obvious gain from trade from high-skilled countries is not more high-skilled people. It's low-skilled. So the biggest gains from trade to the host countries are actually low-skilled people. I think the high-skill, low-skill gets conflated with other cultural arguments and other fiscal arguments that they needn't be associated with, but the idea that uh, the gains from trade are mostly on high-skill just is a fundamental misunderstanding of the economics of trade. Um, connected to this, you've put together a framework of risks and costs of migration to host countries. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to describe more about the different types of risks and how they can be mitigated in certain situations? <laughs> Well, how to mitigate them is complex, and I'm not really sure, but I think we need to at least acknowledge that that's what we're talking about and be clear about it. So I think there's four risks. One are economic risks, that somehow the arrival of new migrants makes the existing natives worse off, either through wages or fiscal costs or whatever. I don't think that's really the primary issue. We have tons and tons of evidence. Those consequences are actually, A, relatively small, B, can be handled. The second is cultural risks, that the natives just don't like, don't care for, don't want to be around people that are different than them. I think it's perfectly natural in human nature that there's some sense of us versus them, and those are identities are acquired over time, and how we kind of cope with those cultural assimilation, whatever we want to call it, issues, I think is hugely important. The third set of risks are on po politics, that if you allowed large number of people to come and become voting citizens. They may change the composition of the vote in ways that people object to, and hence they'll object the political outcome in the future being different by stopping people from coming today. That's a big risk and a hugely important factor in a lot of countries. I mean, if you're a borderline unstable political economy because you have two ethnic groups, obviously allowing more migration of one of those ethnic groups has massive political consequences. And then the third are security risks that, you know, foreigners will come on your territory and perpetrate acts of terrorism or act of crime, and those have to be addressed. So I think those four sets of risks kind of play out in the political sphere, and if you can't address all four of those risks, you shouldn't expect to have success among rich country voters in favoring more mobility. Looking towards the future, how will um, demographic changes in some rich countries change or have to change the, the conversation when it comes to uh, immigration policy? Well, I, I think <clears throat> there's two sets of countries. Um, one set of countries is in fact not going through a massively rapid um, demographic shift. That's more, for a variety of reasons, the Anglo heritage countries. Whereas the continental European countries, by and large, are in the midst of demographic suicide. Um, fertility rates have fallen from quite actually moderate levels to very low levels very fast. What that does is it inverts what we call the demographic pyramid. If you look at the ratio of old people to young people, what's happening in Europe today is the number of old people 
are moving through the pyramid, and they're still growing. You know, the number of 65-year-olds 15 years from now, well, they're 50 today. So we know what that will be, whereas the number of young people coming in behind them is very smaller. So we have a pyramid increasingly standing on its tip rather than standing on its base. And that means since the base or the working force and the tip or the retirees, you can't afford anything like the social protection schemes that Europe now has with anything like the demographic pyramids that will result from uh, less migration. So to some extent, the discussion is not very forward-looking because everybody thinks the issue is how does Europe keep migrants out. The real issue is how, to mi how does Europe get migrants in because they need the migrants as bad as the migrants want to come. It's just they haven't quite realized it yet because the problem is um, in some sense a little far off. But the demographics of Europe are going to cause a massive shift in migration in the quite reasonably near future. It's just we don't quite see it yet, but it's coming. This demographics is something that's perfectly predictable. Everybody who's 65, 20 years from now, is um, 45 today. So we know who they are. We know their names. It's not like we have to forecast some complicated thing, right? So these demographics are inevitable, and they're coming at us very fast. So I think this also connects kind of to the importance of the nation state and the sense of us. And so mm. I'm wondering, like, how does nationalism affect the, the debate surrounding migration? So I think nationalism is in some level the key debate. And I think there's a couple of things to remember about nationalism. First of all, nationalism, whatever you want to call it, socially constructed, Benedict Anderson's imagined community, nationalism is a fiction, right? It's just, as one person said, a nation is a group of people who misunderstand their own history and hate their neighbors. Like, we really don't have any good nation. There is no objective definition of a nation. The bizarre feature of the 20th century of people stopped believing in God but kept believing in nation, like, but the nation has no more reality than anything other abstract notion. Um, so first of all, nationalism is a very super, super, super modern thing. It's not a long-standing feature of human history to have a strong affiliation as identity to a, anything like a nation. The idea of a nation itself was only invented in its modern sense um, in a historical blip, right? Second, there's a huge difference of whether people regard national identity as a closed or an open identity. So think of it, some religions are proselyting religions. They're happy to have anybody join them, and, and they're, so they're an open identity. And they might be a strong identity, but it's open identity. Um, so some nations might be like proselyting religions. We're happy, you know, we're happy for you to be like us, but we invite anyone to become us. And there's a procedure for becoming us that's understood, and people can go through it, and then they become us just as if they were born us, right? That's an open identity. Some nation is socially constructed around a belief that the nation has this underlying purpose and an underlying existence that's closed that the only way one can be of a certain nation is to be born that nation. And when that idea of a nation coincides with the control of a state, that's explosive. A huge fraction of the evils of the 20th century are a combination of the idea of nationalism with the idea that a state has a purpose that realizes itself in the idea of the nation. 
fundamentally what drove Nazism, fundamentally what has driven genocides around the world is that these people don't belong to the body of the nation and they're foreign, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think, on the other hand, other nations are open identities and you can become that identity. Uh, I think the future of the world is countries that believe start to believe that nation is an open identity and act to say how do other people from that were born in other countries become one of us and how do we work to assimilate a broader number of people and part of that is facilitated by realizing that we can separate out identity issues from political issues and that not everybody in living under the same political sovereign has to share in some sense, the same tribal primordial impulse towards a nation. So separate the state as a host for lots and lots of different identities from the nation, from those national identities. And I think nation states are more successful when they're more about open identities and more about tolerating lots of different identities under a rubric in which they all cooperate, rather than the vision that the state is the realization of a particular national identity. That has been a particularly tragic set of things, but fundamentally still drives the way we think about migration. Great. Thank you so much, Professor Pritchett. Um, we really appreciate you having us on the show, and we look forward to um, hearing from you in the future. Okay. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.